I'll be reading 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1, 2, and 3. Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods which God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. Some of you know my devious mind. I was thinking about saying that uh, you're not the Marines, but you're the few and the proud and the scattered. (laughs) Nobody could accuse us of not believing in social distancing, right? Recently, I was thinking about a friend that I knew many years ago. We went to the same Christian college, now a university, and while there, both of us decided to become preachers. I was the best man at his wedding, and I considered us to be really close friends, not just casual friends, close friends. After we graduated, our paths diverged. His first preaching job was disappointing, and he decided not to preach anymore. He decided to go to a state university and pursue a different kind of career. A false teacher at that university, a man who claimed to be a Christian, influenced him in such a way that he turned from the faith and decided that God did not create everything and that we simply arrived by the evolutionary process. But that was only the beginning. Later, he divorced his wife And when I tried to talk to him about the path that he was following, he refused. He would not talk about it. Now, he has a Ph.D., and he teaches at a university, but he has no faith. And as far as I know, has not had anything to do with the Lord's Church for many years. The word apostasy does not appear in our English Bibles. But the Greek word apostasia, which you can easily recognize, becomes our word apostasy, appears twice in the original text. And that word expresses a falling away, a withdrawal, or a defection from the faith. The two times it appears, one in Acts 21 and verse 21, kind of an unusual situation in which there were 
people who were accusing Paul of teaching people to forsake the law of Moses. That's the apostasy word, forsake Moses. That is, the teaching of Moses in regard to circumcision and customs. The second time it appears is in 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter, and the third verse, when Paul writes about the falling away or the apostasy that was still to come, that was coming. And incidentally, that was not just a fanciful idea that he had. That was the communication of the Holy Spirit. And so the concept of apostasy is seen in those two places, but in fact there are many other places where warnings about what we call apostasy are recorded. And if we were so minded tonight, we could look at a number of different passages. We could look at Acts 20, verses 28 through 30, where Paul, meeting with the Ephesian elders, warns them of some who would speak perverse things to draw away, that's apostasy, draw away the disciples after themselves. Or we could talk about the passage you heard from 1 Timothy 4 and verses 1 through 3, when Paul tells Timothy how some will depart from the faith. That is apostasy. Or 2 Timothy 4, verses 1 through 4, the same apostle mentions those who will not endure sound doctrine. That is apostasy. Not just Paul, though, because you could go to Peter's writing, 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2, when Peter will warn of false teachers. False teachers, if listened to, lead people astray and they apostatize. Not just Paul and Peter. John, in 1 John 2, verses 18 and 19, warns of Antichrist who had come and who would be present. Antichrist against Christ would be people who would draw Christians away from the faith if they were listened to. We're not going to look at any of those passages in detail. But what we need to do is just recognize the danger that of apostasy was a real danger in the first century, and it still is. It still is. And sadly, the spiritual highway has been littered with far too many of our fellow Christians who have fallen away from the faith. Some of them may have been your family members. Some of them may have been close friends, longtime friends, who are no longer in the Lord's church and who have found it more convenient to live in apostasy. What I want to do tonight is to focus on just one group of people who were threatened by apostasy. And these were the Christians who were meeting in the city of Colossae. And so if you will look in your New Testament to the letter Paul wrote to the Colossians. And if you'll turn to chapter 2, we will begin at verse 1 and we will note several things. 
As Paul writes to this church, he says, I want you to know what a great conflict I have for you. It's a very interesting expression. Paul is stirred up. There is an intense feeling that he has for them and their welfare. And incidentally, you will note, not only for the Colossians, but also for those Christians in Laodicea. Yes, yes, the Laodicean church that by the time we get to Revelation 3 is in deep trouble spiritually. Paul was concerned about them. And he says in verse 2 that his hope for them, his desire for them, is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, attaining to all the riches of the full assurance of understanding, to the knowledge of the mystery of God, both of the Father and of the Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. We don't have time to discuss the the, some of the threats that were against the Colossian Christians, but one of them was that false knowledge, that, that uh, Gnostic idea, those who claim to know the, the deeper things of Christ and how uh, normal Christians couldn't know those deep things. Paul was truly concerned about their spiritual welfare. And he wanted to encourage them and help them. And, and remember back in chapter 1, verse 28, notice what he says about Christ. Him we preach, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we may present every man perfect, complete in Christ Jesus. Paul truly cared. But he also understood that there were some who could deceive them with persuasive words. And so he says that in verse 4, Now this I say, lest anyone should deceive you, trick you with persuasive words. Not every false teacher stumbles around in his teaching. He may be slick-tongued. He may seem to have a brilliant mind. And with that brilliant mind and those persuasive words can move people away from the faith. Some would try to cheat them through philosophy and em empty deceit. Verse 8, beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Paul would have them to understand there is a great difference between human traditions and those things that the world accepts and lauds and appreciates and the knowledge of Christ and his way. There is a great difference. And he would be concerned for their welfare. What could they do? How could they avoid, be, avoid being swept away by apostasy? I think in this passage... The apostle gives four specific ways to avoid apostasy. They're, they're really close together. If you look at verses 6 and 7, I think the four are found there. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. 
rooted and built up in him and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. The wonderful thing is that those four ways to avoid apostasy are still available today. And they will help you to stay in the faith rather than leaving the faith. Let's think about them. Number one is we can remember our reception of Christ. In verse 6, he says, As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. Our reception of Christ should be mirrored in how we live in him. If we received him, we ought to walk in him. How did our reception of Christ, that is our obedience to him, how did it begin? Well, I think Paul could have easily written about the actions that we took when we received Christ. He did that in other letters. In Romans 6, verse 3 and 4, he uses the terms baptized into Christ and buried with him through baptism. Or Galatians 3, 27, baptized into Christ. This was not just intellectual action or assent on our part. This was action in obeying Christ by submitting to his will to be buried with him in baptism. Paul doesn't really focus on actions, though. He focuses on attitude present when we obey. They received Christ. You did, too, if you are a Christian. And that's much more than mental consent or ac mental assent that he was a true historical figure. It's not enough to believe Jesus lived. You need to receive him. How did they receive him? Well, they received him as Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, and they understood that he was the one who fulfilled all of the prophecies that had been stated centuries before. Not one of them failed. Every one of them was true. And that's how they received him, as the Messiah. But they also received him as Jesus, the one who would save his people from their sins, as Joseph was told prior to his birth, Matthew 1.21. And they believed what Peter said in Acts 4 and verse 12. If you have your Bible, turn for just a moment while keeping your place at Colossians. Acts 4 and verse 12. The apostle would boldly proclaim, Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. They believed that Jesus was the Savior. And they received him as their Lord. That means their sovereign. When someone was your Lord, you bended to his will. You understood that you humbled yourself before him. And Jesus, they confessed as Lord. Paul put all those together in verse 6, didn't he? Christ Jesus the Lord. And that reinforced what he had written back in chapter 1, verse 18. Notice, 
And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he may have the preeminence. But it also would come a little bit later in this chapter, in verse 10, when the same apostle would write, You are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. You see, the Gnostic heretics were telling Christians that they were not really complete. And Paul says, you are complete in Christ. That's where your completion comes. Not in the philosophies of men, not in human ideas. You're complete in Christ. And certainly a safeguard against apostasy would be a proper appreciation of who Jesus is, what he is, what he is to us. And it is what caused us to receive him. You know, I'm not going to indict you. I'm going to say we. We really may not spend enough time remembering what it was like. That day we received Jesus through our obedience. Do you remember the joy you had that day? The joy that you knew because you had become a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, 17. You are a new creation. Something entirely different happened that day. You moved from the state of lostness to being saved. What joy that brought. Recall the gratitude in your heart as you recognize that Jesus had made a sacrifice of himself, of his body and of his blood, so that your sins might be cleansed. What gratitude you should have felt. And what a burden was lifted. All of that guilt of sin that had weighed us down, we saw lifted from our shoulders because we were now in Christ I don't know the last time you thought about your conversion, but I hope you will. I hope you'll remember that day with fondness that you gave your life to Christ and you received him. Paul adds something else, though. He says we can remember our roots in Christ. That's a way to avoid apostasy. In verse 7, he mentions being rooted in Christ and built up in him. Without a good root system, there can't be any stable building up of a plant. But without a good root system for us, there can't be any building up of our faith in Christ. You ever seen any of those huge tumbleweeds? Boy, we saw a lot of them when we lived in West Texas. And you know, there, there are different varieties of tumbleweeds, so I'm not sure that every one of them is identical, but many of the tumbleweeds that we saw had a single narrow root. And, and with age, that single narrow root turned brittle. And because it became brittle, it had a limited life, which led to death and then subjection to the wind. Tumbleweeds were not living things. They were dead things. 
And some lives become like that. When Jesus was explaining the parable of the soils, he said, some receive the word with joy. And then he added, yet he has no root in himself, but endures only for a while. How sad it is that we have seen children of God who were faithful for a little bit or for a little while or for a few weeks, or a few months, or a few years, and then they were gone. They had no root in themselves. You know, the Lord put it another way, when he likened our relationship to him, to be like a vine and branches, John 15. He said, I'm the vine, and you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, notice, bears much fruit. You see, the connection between us and Christ, if we stay in Christ, if we keep our, our, our relationship to Jesus, if we're rooted in him, we can bring forth fruit. But remember that Jesus also adds, for without me, you can do nothing. You can't do anything without Christ of any significance spiritually. Once you leave Christ, once you cut yourself off from Christ, if you're not rooted in him, your life is going to be a disaster. The ultimate result of a life without Christ is withering and eventually being thrown into the fire and burned. That's uh, John 15, verse 6. Our Lord said that. People who stay connected to Christ don't fall away from the faith. There's a tie that holds them and binds them and keeps them safe. And, and while they remain in that condition, Jesus said in John 10, 28, that no one can snatch them out of his hand. If you stay with Christ, the devil cannot have you. Can't. Paul's not through because he says we can also remember our faith. Apostasy happens, according to, to our understanding, when people begin to discard the truths they once believed in in regard to Christ and his church and Christ's cause. There, there has been, and there still is, a tendency on the part of some to outgrow their faith. This is a particular danger when children leave home and go to college and they begin looking back on the faith of their parents and they sometimes even make fun of that faith as if it's old-fashioned and shallow and meaningless. And so what they seek to do is to find something that's not too simple. They want something that's deeper. And what they find is a pit into which they fall. The beauty of our faith is that it is simple in many ways. That's the way God designed it. So that you don't have to be a PhD, which my friend became, still without Christ. You don't have to be a PhD. You can be a person who has very little learning, but be in the faith, because the faith is simple. It means putting your trust in Jesus. Trust and obey, we sing, and that's the only way to be happy in Jesus. Not long ago, I was looking at a book that was written some years ago, 
And in that book, the, the writer took note of 10 men in our brotherhood who were writing and preaching things that were at odds with God's word. And when that book was published and when people began reading it, some were more critical of the writer than they were of the men about whom he wrote. But you know what? Today, none, not one of those ten men is in our fellowship. They've all moved on. <laughs> They've all found something they preferred to being in the faith. We need to mark this down. You've heard it before, but you need to hear it again. When we start moving away from the faith, there is no stopping point. Why should you stop if you move some from the faith? Why not continue moving away from the faith and eventually you will be lost completely? We ought to be working on abounding in the faith not abandoning our faith. Here's one more final safeguard. And Paul says that we can be thankful. We need to remember to be thankful. Again, verse 7. As you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. You know, it might seem a little bit surprising that this would be one of the ways to avoid apostasy, but it really is. Because a thankful Christian, one who is truly thankful to God, will be a healthy Christian. Because that Christian will recognize the goodness of God toward us. And it will result in giving thanks to him continually. When, when we think of God's goodness, we don't just think of physical blessings. Too often our minds are centered only in the physical things that God gives us, but he gives us so much more. He gives us the guidance of his word and the privilege of being his children, heirs of eternal life. A thankless life is fertile soil for the seeds of apostasy to be sown. And that could be one of the reasons why there are multiple exhortations in the scriptures for us to be thankful people. How about Ephesians 5 verse 20? Giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. How about 1 Thessalonians 5.18? In everything give thanks for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How about Hebrews 13, 15? Therefore, by him let us continually offer the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. Put all those together. Always, all things, everything, continually. Do you see our responsibility, our blessing that comes from giving thanks to God? People who are thankful to God and who keep praising God for what he's done won't depart from him. When we stop praying, when we stop thanking God, when we stop recognizing his goodness toward us, that's when we get into trouble. I finish like this. The Colossians were not the only ones who were surrounded by enticing voices. Those enticing voices that seem to lure us away are always present. Every age has them. Our age has them. They still exist today. 
And even one lost soul is too many. We grieve over those who have left the faith because we know that if they don't come back to the faith, their eternal destiny will not be a happy one. Apostasy can be avoided. Let's do whatever it takes to avoid it. If you are in need tonight spiritually of our help, we want to give it. One of the great things about the Lord's church is that we are ready to help people obey Christ. If you're not a Christian and you need to be baptized into Christ, we want to help you do that. That's where your reception starts. You don't receive Christ just by saying, yeah, I believe he is. You've got to give everything to him. Then you receive him. And if your life as a Christian isn't what it ought to be, get it right. Don't let yourself be drawn away from the Lord. If we can help you, come now while we stand and sing.